0: Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by the mega pint of iced coffee herself, Danielle Caroli. How's it going?
1: Oh, my goodness. It's only 30 ounces, and it has a lot of ice in it.
0: You know, I heard a funny story from the show down in Maryland that you judged the other day.
1: I'm scared to ask what it was.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, apparently, uh, some of the people that were putting on the show made sure that there was iced coffee on hand. And sharing was uh, a good thing where, you know, if you needed a refill, you could get it. And apparently somebody might have had a mega pint of iced coffee to the point where they refilled it two or three times.
1: I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. (laughs) I will say that refill or refills, plural, was so, so appreciative or appreciated. And we'll just leave it at that. We're not going to talk about how many refills I went through or what was in the cup to start with. Um, Mm. we're just going to gloss over those details. And so what's going on in your barn?
0: Oh, well, before I get into what's going on in my barn, I was just going to add that maybe uh, next time for nationals, we'll do a uh, IV drip bag for you. So you don't even have to intake it through, you know, orally.
1: It wouldn't be a bad thing. I do know that there is plans to have strategically placed coffee throughout the national, um, Area, You know, throughout Nationals so that this way we'll figure out who's closest to the show ring and have a coffee bar there, who's closer to the vendor areas. There are plans in the works to make sure that we are well caffeinated. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Sounds
0: good. Uh, yeah. So what's going on in my barn, you ask? Uh, well, we had a show last weekend. I guess we. I should talk about that. Um, we had fun time alice and tyranny and you know we had the goaties there and uh, alice had a wonderful time playing in the mud puddles because it was a rainy day oh and, my god uh, she
1: was so stinking cute in those pictures <laughs> we were yeah, off well, the goat show <laughs> yeah
0: yeah well she you know she had her show whites on unfortunately she didn't get in the ring um or maybe fortunately because all she wanted to do was play with the shavings uh and try to eat them. But yeah, no. <laughs> uh you know, we, we had a good show. We walked out with a new uh pending permanent champion. So hopefully she won't be pending for 2 years and it'll be just, a, you know, a couple months, but uh yeah, no. We're we're uh we're pretty happy with how we did. Our herd did well and now we're just resting the herd until nationals and uh, in a week or so we'll be starting the uh task of getting everybody clipped and fancy for that national show in Harrisburg. Um, but yeah, that's us. How How was your week?
1: Well, I realized I was about as barn blind as they come. Well, first of all, let me say congratulations again. I know I've said it off the podcast, but congratulations again on finishing your dough. That's super exciting. Thank you. No problem. But yeah, so... I was about as barn blind as they come and had a realization this week that, oh, shoot, like you're not seeing your goats right. And so what happened was our county 4-H needed to have our sponsor kids for the fair have their animals leased by June 1st. And so one of my sponsor kids last year, she had worked with the doe And this doe this year didn't get pregnant, so she needed to find another doe to be her sponsor animal for showmanship and the 4-H show. Mm -hmm. And so last year she picked a doe because she liked her, and it was a little bit problematic because the doe and her just didn't really mesh showmanship-wise. This doe loves her, loves to come up to the fence and get scratches and is really sweet with her. But showmanship wise, this doe maybe wasn't the right fit for an animal to be competitive in showmanship. So this year, I said, okay, here are the options. You're, she's old enough to have a milker and she's had a milker in the last year too. But I said, okay, I have these milkers. Let's see which one works best for you. And so we took them out. And I had her walk them around and kind of did this makeshift ring and stood in the center and was the judge. And basically, we tried to figure out which goat fit the handler, almost like in Harry Potter, which wand fits the wizard. (laughs) (laughs) And so... so, yeah, so we started and we brought one doe out and I had her pick. I mean, I only have 5 milkers or 6 milkers this year, excuse me. But um one milker and her don't get along, so I figured she was out. And then one of my other milkers, she's more she's in milk, she's older, she's kind of semi-retired, figured she probably wasn't a good doe competitively for her to bring out. And then the last one was a finished champion and I always hesitate to give my sponsor kids a finished champion dough because while they can compete in champion challenge and this dough actually does have the championship attached to her registration paper. She's not a pending champion, but um, while they can compete in champion challenge, I kind of feel a little weird about that for the showmanship animals and for competing in 4-H as a sponsor kid. So I figure if they earn their championship while the, sponsors exhibiting that's one thing but I try and hesitate from giving them a finished dough for sponsorship so it really broke it down to three animals and so she brings out the first one and I'm standing back and watching her walk around the or around the the lawn and I just go oh this dough looks good Oh my goodness, here I was. She's a three year old. I'm going, oh my gosh, she's so immature. What am I doing? What is going on? How am I even going to get her out of the barn this year? She looks like a two year old. You know, all these thoughts are going through my mind. And so she gets out with this dough, and I'm like, oh, she actually looks good. This is good. Like, oh my gosh, we're good. (laughs) things are
0: happening (laughs)
1: what sorry
0: things are happening
1: (laughs) yeah I'm like this is a nice dough maybe I don't need to sell her and so then she shows this dough sets her up she does okay and I'm like okay this is an option she brings out the second dough who's also a three-year-old and this dough is a has does have a finer bone pattern and is a little bit narrower and definitely a little bit more immature, but she brings her out and I see this doe walk and I go, okay, she's not handling her the same. There's, you know, issues in how she's handling this doe, how this doe is walking for her. But if I put a different showman on her, this might be a good fit. Mm Mm-hmm. Or uh, this, you know, this dough actually does look good. This isn't a good fit for her as a show, as, you know, for showmanship. But, like, we could do something with this dough. Like, she actually looks good. So I'm like, all right, another one I don't have to get rid of. Like, thank goodness. And then we bring out my two-year-old, who, once again, I'm like, she's tiny. She's immature. She's suppo- she looks like a yearling. And I have her handle her. And I go oh my gosh, here were my three does, which basically I was saying, we're not going anywhere with, we're sitting home, this is it, we're, you know, nobody looks like I want them to look. And we bring these three does out and I'm like, oh, I can actually see them and appreciate them as they're walking around in that show-like fashion. And I'm like, oh, okay, we're okay. This isn't as bad as I thought this year. And so just had this huge realization that, oh my goodness, I am so barn blind to more of the negative than anything else. Definitely not going, oh, they're all so pretty, but so critical and really needed to take that step back and just look at the goats and total perspective change.
0: Well, that's a good thing. You know, it kind of reminds me, our guest that we have today, Uh, has called me, uh, really hasn't called me barn blind, but has called me a sandbagger uh, because I tend to downplay some of my stronger animals uh, just because that's what my brain does. Uh, But yeah, we do have a guest today, Danielle. We have Dr. Kurt Schnipke of Overboard Dairy Goats, uh, and he's going to be joining us today to talk about showmanship. We had an episode uh, last year, I believe, Uh, with he and Julie Mathis, and we quickly, like, after that recording and and it being published, you know, Kurt and Julie were like, you know, we could add a little bit more to this. There's more to it. And, and, you know, I and at the time Nate agreed, and uh, unfortunately, Julie's not able to join us today, but we do have Kurt Schnipke, and we are going to be delving into showmanship once again as everybody's ramping up for national show, for county fairs, and even some of those club shows that have the showmanship aspect to it as well for the youth. Uh, So welcome to the show, Dr. Kurt Schnipke.
2: Thank you. I am super excited to be back here with Ringside and uh, joining for my first time with Danielle. And so this is um, fun and exciting always to, to join and share with listeners, uh, a little bit of maybe the, um, I'll call it wisdom. Others may see it differently, but, um, share some insights into, uh, the dairy goat world. Yeah. I, We're I, so I, happy
1: is... to have you. And I feel like you might know really quick off the top of your head. Cause I feel like there's a slight competition going on with some of our repeat guests, but how many times have you been on ringside now? What what number appearance is this?
2: Oh, goodness. I didn't know that it was a formal con- competition, but this is either my third or fourth um, guest appearance on ringside. I, I don't know which one it is, but it, it's either three or four now. I believe it's number
0: four. I, that I could, that be, could be.
2: I'll go with it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, right now it's, uh, I believe you and Grace Toy
2: are uh, fighting for the top seed. <laughs> Well, you know how competitive I am, so I'll be back next week and the week after that, just so I can take <laughs> oh, the lead. Yeah, because
0: yeah, you,
2: you got time for that, <laughs>
0: uh, now, Kurt. Before we get into showmanship, uh, I, I I do want to touch on
2: ad good news. But first of all, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. Um, you know, it's uh, the summer semester. I'm I'm a professor at the university in which I graduated, and so. We just started back to um, summer semester this week was our first week back, and so um, I'm teaching four classes this summer, which is quite an undertaking. Um, and to do that while trying to mix in some goat shows here and there, and certainly um, right now prepping for the national show, I I haven't officially entered yet, but I have my list written as far as who I think I might enter and. Certainly prepping the goats as if they're going to go, and I'll certainly be making the official decision here in the next couple of days before entries close. But um, yeah, I, I think life is is just humming right along right now. Awesome, great.
1: Humming might be a little bit downplaying it from the sounds of it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, if I call it an organized chaotic three ring circus, then you know it it makes it sound like, why would anybody do it? But at the same time, um, that was kind of what my first show of the year was this past weekend was, um, it was a three ring show. And of course, I do this by myself. And, and so I, I took um, the bulk or all of the entry for the Oberhausley breed at, at that show. And so trying to show multiple goats in multiple rings and you know, I was very fortunate to have some very willing and capable youth that stepped up and said, sure, we'll, we'll help you out and we'll help you show goats so that we could um, have a good time at a show. Yeah, for sure.
0: So, all right, well, let's, let's bang out this, uh, ad good news real quick. Um, not a ton of stuff going on, but some important stuff. So we're going to touch on it. Um, the new ADGA National Show page uh, is officially released on the ADGA website. And man, is it fancy. Uh, one thing that does stink is uh, now when I go to look at like past national show results, it's gone. I can't find it anywhere on the ADGA website. So that kind of stinks. Hopefully they'll kind of fix that uh, error that is now broken, but... Uh, you know, i signed up for and you know, entered my animals and it was fairly easy. So yeah, thank you, Adga, for that. I mean it, it did run pretty smooth.
1: <laughs> um, what are we talking? What's else? Uh Guernseys for mm-hmm. nationals. Do you want to speak on this a little bit?
0: Oh yeah. So uh Guernseys are able to be entered for exhibit on the National Show website. When you go into do entries like you would for any other breed, uh there's a drop down that says Um, now it says Guernsey Exhibition and not uh, Golden Guernsey Exhibition because that was a thing I had to send an email and correct Um, but yeah it says Guernsey Exhibition Um, now you must buy a pen if people think they're just going to enter them and then that's good no they need a pen Um, and from my understanding Guernseys will be penned in the same area with other Guernseys um, and it's going to be near the show arena so if you're you know, in a separate barn, like your animals are and you have like a second breed or third breed, um, your animals are going to be separated. Um, and that's just because they want all of the Guernseys there for everybody to exhibit. So it's just so people aren't like meandering around trying to find all these uh, Guernseys. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting for the Guernsey breeders. If you have Guernseys and you're able to go to the national show, please bring them. I know like milkers are going to be tight. They need 20. Um, and it's going to be tight. Like, I don't know if they're going to make it, but, uh, they're trying and we're trying. So I'll be bringing my two juniors.
1: No, that's exciting to see. It's going to be, I mean, I know it is an inconvenience if you have milkers and you're going to have a milking setup in one area and a milking setup in another for two different breeds or what have you. But to see a collective group of Guernseys is going to be really exciting to just, see them all and appreciate them and should be great for the breed.
0: Oh yeah yeah, I can't wait to see all of them.
2: I, I think I'll interject here as well um, and say that I agree Danielle, that's really exciting to see some um, movement within the breed I guess is the way that I'll say it is um, you know the the breeders have been asking to be, display animals or a display breed at the national show. And I guess my thought is while inconvenient, perhaps to have to have two different milking setups or, or two different pen setups for your animals at the same time, that show of dedication is what is basically is what ADGA is requiring the Guernsey breeders to prove basically If you want to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk as well as far as wanting this breed in the national show. Mm -hmm. And so to me, while yes, it seems like an inconvenience, every breed that has gone on display status has had to do this exact same process. And so in keeping with congruency and consistency with other breeds, the Guernsey breeders are going to have to do the same thing and show that they have the same level, level of dedication to make it happen. I agree. I mean, if
0: somebody has another breed, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be people there that don't and maybe they'll be willing to share like their milk stand if you're comfortable with doing that and uh, you know, kind of help take care of animals if you're not around since that's their only breed. Um but yeah, it's it's going to be great. I hope the Guernsey breeders work together and and make this special. It's going to be so awesome. Uh, next bit of news. Um, there is no wine and cheese this year. At nationals, um, I don't know if it's a COVID thing or what, but uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't any last year, and there's not going to be a wine and cheese this year, so that's disappointing. I've heard awesome things about it, but I'll just experience it at the next national show that I go to, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's it's a bummer that it's um, not happening again this year. Um, having gone to many wine and cheese events. Um, and partaking in both aspects of the wine and cheese event. <laughs> um, I can attest to how wonderful they are um, what I what I think I always enjoyed the most about the wine and cheese event outside of the amazing um, handcrafted goat cheeses and artisanal goat cheeses and the you know really wonderful, um, wines that were brought in by different wineries, um, which certainly were great for the taste buds. Um, but to me, the the joy of the wine and cheese uh, party or the wine and cheese banquet was that it happened at the end of the show. All of the breed shows are done. All of the champions and reserve champions and utter awards and, and so forth have been awarded. And so it's sort of like a a nice... Um, think of it almost like a family get together at the end of the show to conclude and wrap up the show and just join in fellowship with the other like-minded people that are there supporting this crazy hobby that we all participate in, or for some people it's a business as well, of course, but um, it, it, it was just a really nice way of kind of wrapping up the, the show and creating a space and a time for people to just join in fellowship and camaraderie together, um, outside of the competitiveness of the show ring. So I am certainly bummed that there is not going to be a wine and cheese event this year. However, the way that I understand it is that it is still part of the COVID protocols. And, um, so it's certainly understandable why we're not able to do it this year. And, we can all certainly hope that it will rejoin the national show schedule in future national shows. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've been
0: watching the news, and in my area alone, you know, COVID's been on the rise, and with nationals so close, like we've been wearing masks everywhere we go because we don't want to contract it and miss out on the show. So um, it is definitely a concern with you know all the COVID stuff. So I get it. Um, yeah. Now, Daniel. Act-
1: No, no, I was just going to say thinking back and we're definitely going to miss the camaraderie and it's probably going to slightly negatively affect the Colorama sale in the fact that the wine and cheese happens right before the Colorama sale. And I'm not going to call her out, but there is one member in our district who likes to partake in the wine and cheese and then Goes to the colorama sale and likes to try and get these goats that are being auctioned off. And I, you sit next to her. It's scary because all of a sudden you're forming a uh, What is it? Co- co- Coalition. What? Coalition. No, co- it, uh, you're the forming conglomerate. A conglomerate. Yeah, you're forming a conglomerate and buying an Alpine that you have no intention of or a bidding on an Alpine that you have no intention of ever really getting, but you know, a little influence of, uh, some delicious wine sure goes a long way. So <laughs> it's very, it was very strategically placed on how, um, the wine and cheese event flowed into that Colorama sale. But, um, I think the Colorama sale still will be good and probably safer for, some people's pockets, but, you know, still a good, <laughs> successful, fun event.
2: Well, you know, the the organizers of those sales, um, there is a reason that alcoholic beverages are available prior to and during those sales, such as the Colorama and the Spotlight sale, because there's not just one ADGA member. There are multiple that have ended up bidding and or buying animals um, after being inebriated to various extents shall we say
1: yes could you imagine though like waking up and looking in your pen and seeing a la mancha and going how the heck did this get here and then checking your credit card statement and going oh that's how
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right well i'm not gonna be uh going to colorama that's for sure if uh that's how it's gonna go because by the end of the week, when we're all done, I'm going to have fun.
1: <laughs> Not uh, by the end of the week. Are you kidding? You s- well, I'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, now, Danielle, we have some uh, news about past guests that have seen some success, right?
1: Yeah. So we just wanted to give out a shout out to our friends from Australia and They just had a big win and actually using those U.S. genetics that they talked about on the podcast a few episodes back. So congratulations to Kylie and her GOAT, R142 Datadu's Playboys champ, who was a big winner a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah, congrats to them. Congratulations. It's awesome. Um, Now, I think we should probably – jump right into our topic you know we've 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 killed a lot of time here let's let's get right into it showmanship it's a huge thing kids love it adults uh should you know take some notes from their kids and maybe learn some uh showmanship etiquette in the ring at any size stage right uh so kurt you know you've got a a pretty good background with showmanship can we hear a little bit about uh your career as a youth with with showmanship
2: uh, Sure. So um, I guess I'll say buckle up, we're in for a ride. But um, <laughs> so <clears throat> showmanship is very near and dear to my heart. Um, because when my sister and I started in 4-H, we started with two Nubian Weathers for the County 4-H show, which is, I think... A similar um, background story for many people that start with with dairy goats or with goats in general, and um, we knew very little. And our 4-H advisors were trying to help us, but goats in general were not a huge project at that time, at least not in our club. And so um, we purchased these two Nubian weathers, and we got them home. And you know, we were instructed that they would need to know how to lead, and they would need to be able to be posed and they would need to be set up. And so we get to the county fair and we had the only two Nubian, uh, weathers. We did not have a dairy weather show at the time and every single other goat in the barn, except for the actual dairy goats, um, every other weather was a boar weather. And so even being very green at, um, you know, this goat project, we could see very quickly. And my parents said, well, kids, you are going to come in dead last tomorrow in the weather competition. These goats very clearly are built very differently from these meat goats, and you're not going to do well in that show. So your only opportunity to be competitive in anything is showmanship. And I know that you guys don't really know what that is, but there's a showmanship clinic happening in about a half an hour in the main show arena. We think that you both need to go out there and just see what it's about. So um, we both took our weathers out into the show arena and um, the, the dairy goat family in the County at that time, they were leading this showmanship clinic and going through and basically doing a practice showmanship competition the night before. And, my sister and I learned quite a bit. And then the next day we competed and um, in remembering what we were told and knowing that that was our only hope at doing anything. uh, My sister and I placed, I was first and she was third in our very first showmanship competition. And so then the competitive bug, I guess was, was lit and um, or, or the competitive bug struck, I guess. So um, from there we decided, okay, well, we want to continue doing showmanship. And, um, the next year, the, the family that raised, um, they raised Alpines in our County. They said, you know, if you really want to get good at showmanship, then you're going to need a dairy goat because you work with them twice a day, every day, if not more, um, just through the normal, um, dairy goat, you know, chores. Mm -hmm. And, They'll, they'll be so much more calm and and relaxed and be able to work with you more in showmanship and so we decided to do that and that's where um, you know we got our first oberhasley and um it was it was one of those things that if we were at a show whether it was a club show the Ohio State Fair, our county fair it didn't matter we were doing showmanship it was one more opportunity to, show our animals. It was one more opportunity to learn. It was one more opportunity to potentially um, win something. If we knew our animals did not have the quality to win in the regular breed classes Um, and being competitive by nature and, and certainly wanting to do well um, it was one more area that we could compete in. So um, without completely tooting my horn, I guess (laughs) <laughs> um, I will say that I, I had a really wonderful showmanship animal who was, um, coincidentally my foundation doe as well. And, um, she and I created quite a team here in Ohio and in, you know, regional competitions. And, um, she was still showing in showmanship competitions. I had aged out of 4-H at that point, but we were still doing 4-H or, um, open class, um, youth and adult showmanship competitions. While she was still um, nine, and I think once when she was a ten-year-old as well.
0: Wow. wow! Yeah, so so you've had uh, quite the extensive career with it, and you know now you're a judge, so you get to see that side as well. So that's really cool. Um, yeah,
2: well, I, I think the the judging side is is even more fun because the nerves and the pressure are not there, not nearly to the extent as. You know, when, when you're a youth and that's your goal, then that's where all of your nerves and your anxieties harbor is in that showmanship competition or, or whatever that competition is. It, it can be a basketball competition or a dance recital or, you know, whether whatever you're involved in as a youth. Um, if, if you have a big event that you've been looking forward to, certainly all of your nerves and your anxieties and your hopes and your dreams are wrapped up into that one event, you um, And so now as a judge, I can see it from a different light. And having gone through that as a youth, I I feel like I can approach it from a manner that is both understanding of each of those those youth's nerves and or um, anxieties that they might have, but also then helping them to learn and to become better in the process. Right.
1: No, I completely agree. And kind of just going back even... I mean, I know you talked about being competitive and those drives to do showmanship, but it does translate so well to just being in the ring with your goats or handling goats for everyone else and kind of even going back to my week and trying to figure out which doe was right for my 4-H sponsor kid. When you see exhibitors handle does, they will either make or break does and you can have a good handler, show an animal and show her to her best advantage. Or you can have a handler that puts a doe that would win with another handler and, you know, excel the class and just bring home that best and show. And if they're not showing her right, she could very well end dead last.
2: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've seen many, a handler, both good and bad, completely change the way that an animal looks. And sometimes it's not even about the, whether the handler is good or bad at handling animals. Sometimes it's a natural calmness that a person can have with an animal that puts that animal at ease. Um. I'll use an example here and and I do not mean to offend any Nubian breeders here, but Danielle, since you have Nubians, I'll I'll use this as an example. I have
1: thick skin. Don't worry. (laughs) It was a requirement.
2: From my experience, many Nubians tend to be, um, let's say attached or one person goats. They're, they're attached to the person that typically does their chores. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then asking somebody else to step in and handle them can sometimes cause some anxiety in that particular animal. And certainly there are exceptions to the rule. Not all Nubians act this way. I'm not trying to generalize here. It's just an example that if you have a showman, again, whether they are good or bad at handling an animal, if they can be calm and exude a presence of calmness to that animal that that calms that animal down, they will still handle better for that person. Than they would if they are not calm, and so sometimes having a confidence in your abilities and having a calm demeanor around those animals can put their stress and their anxieties at ease as well.
1: No, yeah. I hundred, I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, I do have a doe that you're talking about animals who don't like to be handled by people they're unfamiliar with, and last year we took her out and she, we had to put her in the champion lineup and she was a three-year-old and I was showing a five-year-old. So somebody else brought her out and she freaked out until we switched the collars or, you know, switched exhibitors. And so I had them take my five-year-old and then she just stood there. The rest of the time she was, you know, vocal. She was fidgeting. But then the second I said, oh, here, let me take that one. She just calmed down, set herself up. Did exactly what she did and I mean she ended up going grand in that ring I think or reserve grand in that ring but it was that thing that she couldn't focus and do what she I knew she could do because she just wasn't comfortable with the handler
2: yeah, yeah. I another example so actually my showmanship doe um, this may come across a little I um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for right now, but it may come across that it was um, a little underhanded by me, but I loved walking in the ring towards the head of the line with her because she did not like females, number one. And number two was very attached to me when we would go to shows. And so in walking towards the front of the line, Inevitably, back when I was doing showmanship, it was much more common than it is now. Um, and certainly now we have different COVID protocols that we have to be careful with things. But um, it was much more common that every single showmanship class you would switch animals, and in switching animals and then a new handler having to walk her, you typically would would rotate to the animal behind you. is is the way that judges would do it in our area. And so then I would be one or two places behind my animal and she would just go berserk, turning her head and looking behind her and would not stay set up for the person that was handling her. And in a way it made that handler look not so great because they couldn't keep control of her and they couldn't keep her calm and they couldn't keep her set up. And then when I took her back, she would just you know, go into her Zen place. And, and even at times would almost fall asleep in certain long classes. And, you know, I could then, you know, in some ways it would show the judge, oh, this exhibitor really has good control of his animal and, and nobody else can, can show this animal to the same level that he can. And, um, so it it was a bit of an underhanded tactic. Um, but it certainly worked for me many times. And, um, I don't want it to sound like that was the only tactic that, you know, would lead to success, but you know, any advantage that you have in the ring I guess is an advantage, right? Yeah, for sure.
0: Now, as a kid that's getting ready for any showmanship class, uh the first thing they have to do is get their animal prepared for that showmanship class, and that means clipping. Um and now for anybody that listened to the last episode, we won't get into how Kurt brushes his goat's teeth for showmanship, like it's <laughs> ridiculous as it is. Uh, we won't get into that. But uh, are there any tips that you can give kids for uh, clipping their goats
2: for showmanship? Well, I think the first thing um, to talk about as we get into some of the specifics of, of showmanship is the American Dairy Goat Association has a very well crafted and constructed and very well organized scorecard for showmanship. Mm-hmm. And all of the um, areas in which an exhibitor can either gain or not gain points is very well listed within the ADGA showmanship scorecard. And so if we look at that, clipping is delineated as its own category under the appearance of the animal and clipping is um, given 10 points and under clipping, it says the entire body, if the weather has permitted showing allowance to get a neat coat of hair by showtime, neatly trimmed tail and ears is, is specifically under clipping. And so I think um, the first thing that you have to decide is does the weather allow for, proper clipping, meaning um, if it is dropping below 50 degrees in the evening, you probably should not be clipping your goat, or at least not shaving it down to the skin with a 10 blade, or or I would say even a 7 blade, um, because that animal is going to be cold in the evening and uncomfortable, and depending on when showmanship classes are held, many times first thing in the morning when youth are in their whitest of white <laughs> show clothes yeah. before yeah. the day goes on and they get quite dirty because, you know, they either get bored or they sit down or they got hungry and had a hot dog and got ketchup on the front of their shirt or whatever. Um,
1: they're exhibiting so that, a baby goat and she jumps up on you, you know?
2: Oh, exactly. You know, any of those many different things that can happen in a show that can then, you know, take your crisp white show clothes and, and now they're not so white. Um, so that's why many shows will have showmanship early in the morning. Well, if your animal was uncomfortable the whole previous evening and still into that morning because it hasn't warmed up to the afternoon warmth yet, that's going to impact that animal's performance in the ring and subsequently your placement um, in a showmanship class simply because they're too cold. Um, So for me, that's the first thing that I, I take into account. And even here we are, June 3rd, not a single one of my animals has been clipped yet. Um, Now, there will be probably a clipping party starting this weekend just to start getting some of the long hair off and cooling them off for the summer heat. But in Ohio, we have um, very sporadic temperature swings even through May. And so typically, as a rule of thumb, I don't clip anything until Memorial weekend or later um, just because the 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 cold shock that can still happen as it gets cooler in the evenings, I, I don't feel like stressing my animals out in that way. Um, and I can tell you many times as a judge, whether it's a showmanship class or just a regular breed class, I see exhibitors clipping young, even older goats. It can be a challenge for them to to, to manage that temperature swing. But these young kids in you know mid to late April or early May shows, when it is still dropping down into the 50s, and clipping them down to the skin for a show, again, this is purely opinion-based, but it's just not worth it because, A, you increase the risk of that animal getting sick because they're now stressed and they're, they're not able to utilize their energy properly because they're shivering. And B, if they're cold and shivering, they're not going to show to their best advantage anyway. So if you really want to show that animal It behooves you just to leave the hair a little bit longer until you know that that animal, when clipped, can be comfortable 24 hours of the day. So I guess when we start with clipping, that's where I start. Um, And if we look in the ADGA scorecard for showmanship, we can also see in the appearance of the animal um, under hair and hooves, specifically hair, It says clean and properly groomed. So we have a couple areas where grooming and and clipping come into account. And so there's different sizes of blades that um, youth or adults can choose to clip their animals. And I think understanding the amount of um, hair allowance that each of those size blades leaves and how long it takes for that hair coat for different animals to grow is important. Um, and along that line, understanding color of animals is also important and, and how that color might need different growth from a different color. So for example, I raised saunens as well as Oberhasley, and my sonans I can clip with a 10 blade the day before a show and they look fine. Um, Whereas if I clip my Oberhasley with a 10 blade the day before a show, they're going to look washed out and gray and not have that proper, beautiful, rich red Bay tone, especially if it's their first clip for the year. Now, if they've had a clip before, then sometimes I can get away with clipping them the day before a show, but I usually don't do that. If I need to clip before a show, I prefer to use a seven blade because it leaves a longer hair allowance and they retain the, the proper tint to that coat, because what some people don't understand, we'll go into a little bit of color theory with, with Oberhausen is their hair is a banded hair. So it actually has, if you look at it under a microscope, it has differences in bands of a red band and then a slightly um, darker band and then a red band and a slightly darker band. And so, um, uh, that's why occasionally Oberhausley can look different depending on the stage of the the shave of the hair coat. And that's why so many times a, a first clip on an Oberhausley, they look what we call washed out. Um, and so understanding your animal's color, if you have a lighter colored animal, you can get away with clipping them closer and shorter um, to the skin um, and, and closer in relation to the show itself. And with a darker animal, such as maybe a, a, a black doe, a, a black Alpine or a black Nubian or La Mancha or Nigerian, Sable, whatever breed that, that is maybe black, um, they might probably need more like 10 to 14 days to really gain that that true rich black color and, and the, the sheen or the shine that comes with that growth as well as some of those natural oils of the hair coat return to the the skin and coat as well.
1: No, I a hundred percent agree with you and always say that my rule of thumb is for the first show, I need 14 days pretty much with any of my doughs, but especially the black ones or even my experimental who's a son. and, And I feel like that white coat for her just gets a little patchy that first cut. But then once you get her cut, she can, you know, start being clipped right before the show again to really show her off and have the right hair growth for her. And then I also think that it does, it is really important to consider whether or not it's the first clip of the season or not, because if it's the first kit clip, you definitely want to have a little bit longer hair growth because it just kind of helps hide the natural patches that occur while you're clipping and not to say that the hair is not all the same length but just it always looks a little patchy that initial clip and then you give it time to grow in and it corrects itself and evens out and really like you said then starts to shine
0: absolutely yep now is there an area when kids are clipping their showmanship those that they uh, tend to
2: forget often Absolutely. 100%. Um, The areas that I commonly look at when I'm judging showmanship competitions um, that can very easily start to become justifiable reasons based on our scorecard asking for um, the neat coat of hair by Showtime and neatly trimmed tail and ears, it it boggles me sometimes when I'll see what appears to be a very neatly trimmed animal. And then you look inside of her ears and they didn't trim the long hairs inside of the ears. Or you look at the tail and they either didn't trim the tail or they trimmed the tail in a way that's not aesthetically pleasing. And so then those are really easy visual areas, but the more nuanced areas that especially if we have any youth that are in maybe the intermediate to senior showmanship level and certainly at the national show level um, underneath the, the legs um, between the legs and the body or kind of into the armpit or under the flank area. Those areas are very commonly missed along with between the toes. And again, those are very skilled and very nuanced areas to, to go back through and make sure that you get all of those little hairs uh, but they certainly have some importance in in removing those to create that uniform clip throughout the body from head to tail um, and really accentuating the skill that's required in a really good clip.
1: I completely agree. And the one other spot that I notice people miss is that pole of the head, particularly around the area where if the goat was allowed to have horns and wasn't disbudded, Um, the hair growth there and I think understandably it's a trickier area you have a lot of kind of crevices and dips and uh, cowlicks and things going on there but that is another area where it's very easy particularly as you're looking as a judge looking at goats quickly to check that head and see okay this area of the pole has a few hairs extra on it
0: Yep, well, I agree. Some, sometimes goats just don't like their heads being shaved. What well, can well, you know? I yeah, but attacked. that's
1: not that's not. We don't, as a judge, you're not going to say, "Oh, I'm sorry, this goat doesn't like its feet clipped." We're not going to worry about that. We're going to ignore that. No, this is part of selecting the right showmanship animal <laughs> and making sure you have this animal done well. I mean. We can't we're not going to be in the ring going, "Oh, this goat had a bad day," or "Oh, the other goat scared this goat and she's not." No, we judge what's in the ring.
2: That that's absolutely correct. We we judge what's in the ring that day and what's presented to us that day. Um exactly. and and we we cannot place or put biases on the um joys and thrills of each personality of each goat or the um, fears or um, struggles of personalities of each goat. I think as Danielle said, that that's part of the selection process in choosing a showmanship goat. I, I talked about mine was 10 years old when I lost her, but she was still competing that, um, that spring or, or the spring before or fall before in showmanship competitions. And when doing her head, which I, I think many of us can agree that either the heads or the legs are the most difficult areas and, Uh, frustrating areas to clip because goats don't like those areas clipped. Uh, But that showmanship goat, she had had her head and her legs clipped so many times that when I got to her head, she would lay her, her head and her jaw in the palm of my, my free hand and she would almost fall asleep. She would close her eyes and just sit there. And if she wanted to chew cud, she would, but normally she would just lay there, her head in my palm and let me just clip her entire head without fighting, without um, moving. And she, I think she knew if I just sit here still, he's going to get this done a lot faster than if I fight him and we could do her head very, very quickly. Um, and, and actually her entire body, because she knew if I just stand here, it'll be over faster. And again, that's part of selection of the proper animal, but it goes into your, your overall cleanliness and consistency of your, of your clipping um, to have an animal that will be cooperative. Yeah, that must have been so annoying
0: for you to have to deal with that. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: just, no, what you're not hearing is you just need to clip your goats more.
2: Uh-huh, yeah, there right, you go. Yeah. Uh-huh,
0: yeah. All so, the free time in the world.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> I have some so, that do well and some that don't.
1: Okay, so kind of moving a little bit different in a different direction. So trimming feet. What do you think is the best way to optimize the stance of your doe, especially in terms of showing your animal and showmanship?
2: Well, again, I the first thing is to go back to our ADGA scorecard. Um, so we have a section, hair and hooves, that is worth 10 points. And if we look specifically in the hooves category, the st- the scorecard reads trimmed and shaped to enable animal to walk and stand naturally. So uh, for me, uh, and that's that's allotted 10 points in showmanship, and for me, I think that each animal is certainly different. And while there is an ideal shape to the hoof, which would be an uh, equidistant height, from the coronary band, which is where the, the skin and the hair of the leg meet the um, uh, keratin-like uh, structure of the hoof. Um, and so you would want an equidistant height at the, the length from the coronary band to the depth of heel and the coronary band to the depth of toe. We certainly all want that to be equidistant, and and those lines to be parallel from the the bottom of the sole to the coronary band. We we would want those to be parallel. Um, however, there are animals that that is just not possible. Their their toes grow much um, faster, and or they just don't naturally have the depth of heel, and so. Ultimately, it's important to try to shape that hoof to get as close to that shape as possible. Um, but without over trimming those hooves because again, I, I've seen some exhibitors that trim the hooves either the night before or the morning of a showmanship competition. They trim it a little bit too close and now the animal, even if they're not bleeding, they're you know they're quite sore on those hooves because there's not much, Um, tissue left of that hoof between where it would, you know, break into that bleeding area. And now the animal is limping and again, not walking naturally. Um, So my recommendation is two to three days before the showmanship competition is when you should be trimming the hooves of your animal. Um, I'm a firm believer that sharp um, trimming instruments um, and I use the ARS hoof trimming shears, or I, I believe they're actually pruning shears, but um, the ARS brand, and, and I'm not being paid to to plug that brand, but um, they are the brand of shears that I have found retain their hardness and retain their sharpness the longest. I'm using a pair right now that I have been using for over 10 years, and I have not sharpened them once, and they still cut right through the hooves very easily, including trimming buck's hooves and doe's hooves, conservatively about 30 to 40 head of goats once a month for 10 or 11 years now, the same set of hoof trimmers. Um, and so if you are using a sharp set of trimmers, yes, that can be a little bit more dangerous, especially when youth are involved. Um, so if youth are not super careful, certainly there's a risk of, of cutting you know, human skin with them as well. But that is where some adult supervision needs to happen if you, if you know that your youth is not as skilled with that. But sharp instruments cut through the material way safer and way easier rather than creating almost where you have to really have to work at it and apply a lot more pressure which is actually more unsafe to the animal and actually more unsafe to the human using it than if you just have a sharp instrument that will cut right through it the first time you, you squeeze down and, and cut through that material. So I'm a firm believer in using sharp instruments and instruments that you know can do the job. Um, now, some people, when we were starting, we would finish, you know, once you cut the outside band or the the long areas of the toe and the heel, we would then take a... Um, like a woodworker's rasp. Um, and then we would take that to the, the bottom sole of the foot to kind of smooth out the entire bottom into a uniform plane, so to speak. Uh, I no longer do that just for sake of time. And because I, I feel like I'm skilled enough that I can create a flat enough plane with my, my hoof trimmers. Um, but certainly some people still use those, or I, I've seen different people use, I think it's called the Hoof Boss, which is an electric um, hoof shearing knife. Again, I'm not getting paid for any of these plugs for certain brands. Um, although if, if they want to send me compensation, I won't turn it down. But um, you know, certainly you, you have to know what tool works best for you and, and that you can get the job done the most efficiently to create a flat plane on the bottom of that hoof. Uh, without getting it too short prior to you know your competition, so that your animal is still walking naturally and comfortably.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, now we're gonna kind of burn through a little bit of this, okay, Kurt? Because we're we're already like I'm like there's so much I want to get to. Um, so clothing preferences. Uh, when you're entering a showmanship class, what should you wear? What shouldn't you wear? But you see it often.
2: Oh. So, Again, I go back to the scorecard, and if we look at the section Appearance of Exhibitor, it says clothes in person, neat and clean, white costume preferred. Um, And then if we look at the end of the ADGUS scorecard, it says suggested uniform, long-sleeved white shirt, regulation white pants, 4-H or FFA necktie, 4-H or FFA cap if applicable, with matching shoes and belt in black, white, or brown. So, while those, while the scorecard does not say that you must wear white, or that you must wear a certain color belt, or that you must wear something, it does say that it's suggested. Um, and and when something is suggested, to me, that is what the exhibitor should be following: is the mm-hmm. suggested the suggested code or the suggested um, uniform. And so, for me especially if we start talking, you know, a bigger, higher level competition such as a state fair or certainly the nationals as as the national show is coming up, Um, if you are not wearing all white, um, you are hindering your chances right out of the gate. Um, And while it does say suggested uniform of a long-sleeved white shirt, again, this is purely my opinion, that should be changed to just white shirts. The the length of the sleeve should not matter, especially in um, hotter or more humid areas. Mm-hmm. Um, a long sleeve shirt with a youth might become quite uncomfortable. And, and again, now that youth is not as natural in the ring because they're worried about how hot or sweaty they're getting rather than just enjoying the time with their animals. So for me, um, in following along with the suggested uniform, I prefer to see... Youth or exhibitors competing in showmanship competitions wearing all white, um, and neatly groomed. I, you know, I, I hope to see that they have showered sometime in the last twenty four hours, and you know, um, have attire that that exudes a professionalism that we would expect within our association and within the level of competition. Um, so. For me, some things that, you know, I I don't necessarily like to see, but I certainly don't penalize any any youth or adult for wearing them, but I, I don't I just don't prefer to see them um are some of the really big flashy belts or the big flashy belt buckles. Um and the reason behind that is in multiple areas within our ADGA scorecard, um it calls to the handler or the exhibitor being natural and inconspicuous. Um, in one of the areas, it states that the exhibitor should be showing their animal, not themselves. Um, and so, to me, wearing bright, flashy, blingy belts or belt buckles or um, any sort of in uh, any sort of article that does not seem inconspicuous does not seem to be congruous with the goal of the showmanship scorecard and again that's that's my opinion and how i interpret those statements within the showmanship scorecard but i think that there is guide work and framework within the actual language of the scorecard to support that opinion
1: the biggest thing is remember when you're in the ring You want to exude professionalism. And while a judge may not necessarily put you down in placings because your attire isn't quite right, I mean, I think you'll see 4 H shows, particularly or club shows more than necessarily 4 H shows, where the exhibitors are just kind of running in in the morning doing their showmanship and then showing their animals, but maybe they're still in their barn boots or things like that. And sometimes I know we've been told, you know, okay, maybe this person doesn't quite have the same resources or different things like that. Um, So be a little cautious on critiquing people's appearance. But there are things you can do regardless to just make sure that you exude as much professionalism as you can so that this way the judge doesn't even have some unconscious bias When looking at your animal that, oh, this person doesn't have it all together. They're a little bit of a hot mess. So most likely their animal is going to be a hot mess too. And so present yourself to your best ability because then it allows your animal to be presented to its best ability.
0: Well said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we touched on this um, in Showmanship Part 1. So we'll just uh, say, you know, collars, obviously. You want a well-fitting collar. You don't want an oversized collar that's uh, going to cause you to lose your animal. Um,
1: please.
0: <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. You don't want to lose that animal. Um, but where do you guys
2: buy your collars for showing? Um, for me, I, um, I don't like to use metal. Um, show collars, the, the, the chain link or the some people will call them like the the snakeskin metal um, show collars. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is after handling five or ten animals that have various levels of wanting to cooperate with walking or standing still and and the pressure that that can put on the, the skin in your hands and fingers. Um, certain metals, what I would find is by the end of the day or certainly the end of a, a show weekend, um, my hands would be almost raw from the the rubbing or the the ends of the link kind of scratching the skin in my fingers, and so I I really despise showing with metal um, show collars. So I just don't do it personally. I'll handle animals for other people that if if that's what they use and that's what their animals are comfortable with, I'll certainly do that. Um, but I'm I'm not showing those animals all day typically, and. Um, certainly not handling as many of them as I am my own animals. So my preference is um, either one of two things. Um, There are nylon dog show collars um, that are just a a very quick slip um, show collar that uh, I don't even know if the website still has them or if it still exists, but I believe I got them from petedge.com. At the time, and they're they're very thin nylon. Um, Like I said, they're they're show collars for dogs. Um, But in recent years, I have figured out in my frugality and my my being cheap, I guess you could say, um, that paracord um, works just as well, and and it comes in a variety of colors. And so I buy a big bulk amount of black paracord. And then I tie a double-ended knot um, at the length that I want, whether it's for a kid collar or an adult collar. Um, and there you go. You have a collar. Hmm.
0: It, it seems like uh, PetEdge.com uh, now only carries uh, snake chain collars.
2: And, and that could be, like I said, it's been a number of years since I have bought actual formal collars because uh, the last time I had looked was a few years ago, and they were up to... I think nine or 10, maybe even $11 for one of those um, nylon show collars. And I thought I can buy 1,500 feet of paracord for $15. So that will get me quite a few years and quite a few number of, of show collars out of the same thing. That um, if I just hide that knot within my hand, nobody will know the difference. Um, and so again, in my frugality and, and wanting to have cost savings, which cost savings are good for all of us. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I use nylon paracord and because I have brown and black animals, uh, I use the black paracord, but I've also bought purple paracord to use on my sonnins. And, um, what I like about it is it's, it's thin, but also strong and durable. And so you, you still have the same amount of control over your animal, but it's very thin and inconspicuous, and and can um, allow the maximal amount of showing off the the long, lean, beautiful necks that we want to show off, um, comparatively to some of the the thicker metal chains, or um, certainly your your thicker nylon um, uh, snap dog collars that many of us use either in the pens or, or something like that. But um, that's what I use, and that's how I do it. Um, but certainly if you want a slightly more professional look to the end of your collars, rather than dy- tying a double, um, knot, um, you know, you could certainly find them. They, they have to be available somewhere. If not on the website that I used to use then you know, again, use Dr. Google and you could find it, but, um, you know, you certainly can purchase them if you don't want to make them and you want a slightly more professional look. But again, I just hide the knot in my hand when I'm handling and then nobody ever sees it or knows anyways.
1: Right. right. The one thing I, well, so I use the chain collars, but the one little piece of caution I just want to ha like add to this conversation is be careful with what kind of clip you're using. And I really like their, I don't know what they're actually called, but they're kind of a C shape. And then they, um they have a bolt that kind of slides into place And that, I find, works really well for attaching the collars instead of doing, like, your typical choke collar and putting it over their head. You can just attach it with that. But I want to caution, it's probably, while it's easy and they're probably readily available, it's definitely not in your best interest to use a carabiner to clip the goat's collar um, I just judged a show, and I was probably more traumatized than anybody else, but that's on me but and let me back that up by saying, I don't do like human skin injuries whatsoever freaks me out, and so we were in this really big Nigerian class that I was judging wasn't showmanship, but it was a Nigerian class, and there was a kid who was showing his Nigerian and he had a chain collar on, and he had a carabiner to clip this collar. And somehow he pinched his hand in this collar. And so the carabiner clip and the other side were attached to his hand. And this kid went down. He basically passed out in pain. And somehow I, well, probably because I was the only one without a goat in my hands as well, but somehow it was up to me to like unpinch this kid's hand and, Like I said, it was probably more traumatic for me than anybody else, but it just kind of, you don't necessarily want to do that. Make sure your collar is secure and isn't going to cause injuries.
2: Yeah. I I think those carabiners um, they're easy and they're quick, but for a maybe slightly bored or less interested youth, um, especially in some of those longer Nigerian dwarf classes, it also gives them something to play with that maybe they shouldn't be playing with in the middle of a class. And and without proper caution, you know, we we take for granted sometimes how easily those carabiners can pinch uh, soft skin of the hand and fingers.
1: Yeah, it becomes the fidget spinner of the dairy goat class.
2: Exactly. Yes.
1: <laughs> um,
0: now let, let's uh, move into the show ring. And what are some handling tips that uh, makes a good exhibitor uh, into
2: a great one? Um, I think the the strongest piece of advice that I can give, um, as far as the differentiation between a good handler or exhibitor comparatively to a great handler or exhibitor, is to be natural. Um, and again, we have, we have guidance and language within our scorecard that um, kind of builds a framework for that. Um, specifically, when we look at showing the animal in the ring, there's a section that says leading, and it says... Exhibitors should walk as normally and inconspicuously as possible. And so along with that, it says lead slowly with the animal's head held high enough for impressive style, attractive carriage and graceful walk. Um, and yes, you can walk too slowly, um, along with that. Um, But we also look at pose and show within showing the animal in the ring that says avoid exaggerated positions. Um, So all of those different areas that are, are verifiable and direct quotes in the language, in the framework of our, of our scorecard lends itself to being natural. And so for me, the best handlers or the great handlers you know, those ones that that, you know, multiple herds are asking them to handle their animals because they believe it's going to get their animal a better advantage in the ring. Or, you know, I, th- I think each geographical region has its, you know, quote unquote, it show person, whether that's male or female doesn't matter. Um, you know, that person that everybody knows, if they show up for showmanship, they're the one to beat. Yeah. Um, right. And and there's a reason behind that. That those exhibitors both have you know a confidence and um, a a naturalness to the way that they move and the way that they handle their own animals, but they're also very calm and inconspicuous at the same time. And so, even if they are working their butts off in that showmanship class, or you know, even if it's a breed class, you don't necessarily see the effort outwardly that they're putting in because they're able to do it in such a calm and inconspicuous manner that it just looks easy and it looks natural all at once. Now
0: you were talking about the pace there. Uh, You know, I see a lot where, you know, an animal might might not be walking well or is throwing a fit. Um, I see a lot where people are passing, that that exhibitor is that a no-no or is that okay
2: um in regular breed classes you do what you need to do to keep the show mov- moving mm-hmm. so yes if the animal in front of you is not cooperating and is not walking and it's slowing down the progression of the show then yes just pass in front of the animal and keep the show moving in showmanship however typically things like that it's up to the judge because maybe that judge didn't see that yet, and maybe you want the judge to see that your compet- your competition does not have perfect control of their animal and does not have great leading, which, again, is part of the showmanship scorecard, and there's language under leading. So maybe as a competitor, you want to... Again, maybe this is slightly underhanded, but it's certainly a strategy for competing in showmanship. If you know your animal is handling well and the one in front of you is not, you want to make sure that you just stay there until the judge tells you to move. That way you are, are basically... Giving the judge an opportunity to see your competition not handling quite so well. And then when the judge tells you, go ahead and move up one in place and and let the others go around this, and we'll see if she follows or something like that, at least then the judge can see, okay, now this one behind their animal is leading. And so for me in showmanship, um, I will always be there to give exhibitors that guidance of feel free to move around that animal. Um, And and certainly I'm not going to penalize a youth or an adult, if they automatically do that on their own, there's nothing in the language that says that you should do that. Um, But as a, as a competitor in showmanship, I'm not going to freely move ahead of the animal in front of me. That's not cooperating because I want the judge to see that the animal is not cooperating. That just gave me a competitive advantage. So you're saying
0: in showmanship instances, sometimes it's okay to pass, but in other instances, (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: oh my goodness all right i will give you that we made it to an hour and 19 minutes without a lord of the rings reference so props <laughs> you for that one i'll have this one slide but why do i feel like you have that at your tip of your fingertips the whole episode oh, i
2: see I- I feel like he has been waiting for that opportunity to strike.
1: I know. I feel like this is a volleyball thing. Like, you know, spikes. I, I, oh, yeah. it was set up
0: perfectly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so moving on. I just thought it was funny.
1: Um, oh, good job. <laughs> thank you.
0: Pat on the back. Um, how about feet placement? Sometimes you see goats that look like they're about to go surfing on a surfboard in showmanship and others that might be scrunched up a little too tight. Uh, it's probably best for each exhibitor to look at their animals set up by either themselves in a mirror, like we talked in the previous episode, or, uh, you know, videoing or taking pictures. Um, how important
2: is that feet placement for showmanship? Um, it, It's incredibly important because it's It's Again, I I go back to the showmanship scorecard. We have language to address that. Um, So when you look under Pose and Show, and specifically if you move down a few lines, it says Pose Animal, with front feet squarely beneath and hind feet slightly spread. Where possible, face animal upgrade with her front feet on a slight incline. Neither crowd other exhibitors nor leave too much space when leading into a side-by-side position. And then when we look under uh, a different category in showing the animal that's show animal to best advantage, recognizing the confirmation faults of the animal you are leading and striving to help overcome them. So again, under that language, it's it's fairly common practice and, and should be the easier area is the front legs. Those should go straight up and down. And if you if you can't necessarily see by standing up if you if you are a standing up showman then take a quick second to to squat down and just get a quick visual reference do those front legs look straight up and down um and we're certainly not coming out with a t square or a protractor of any sort and you know determining that it's a perfect 90 degree angle that that's not what we're looking for is is that kind of precision but it's very easy to see whether an exhibitor is overstretching those front legs too far out in front of where they should be placed or under placing those front legs too far underneath the bulk of the body or, or the the barrel. Um, So the front legs do need to be square underneath the animal. But what I found um, or find really interesting is when it says, um, hind feet slightly spread. Um, there's a misconception with showing um, dairy goats, especially with bucks and junior does that do not have the mammary system. Um, and that misconception is the wider I can set those back legs and show off all this width of the escutcheon, the better. That that must be what the judge is looking for, is for the width of the escutcheon. And so the wider the rear legs, the better. Um and there's a couple of reasons why that that doesn't actually ring true, and and that you're actually in many ways creating a disadvantage, and and I'll explain them just as briefly as I can. Um, being certainly, I, I'm not an animal science major, and, and I'm not a veterinarian, but uh, my my professional career is as a physical therapist. In um, so, I consider myself a bit of you know an anatomist and a bit of a uh, more truly, form and function observer, which is what I do with humans, and so it it drives how I watch form and function with animals. So, if you set those rear legs too unnaturally wide, a couple things can occur. If they don't have the actual true width between their legs to support the way that you are setting those legs, a it's going to throw off their stifle joint, their hock joint and up into the way that those kinematically support the hip joint uh, and the pelvis. And so in some instances, if you if you set those rear legs too wide, if you look at that animal from the side profile, it can create a steeper rump um, angle than what the animal actually has. And then second, when you look at them from behind, if they don't truly have that width, what they'll do as they're just standing still is those hawks will naturally start to angle in towards each other because they're simply not built to support that width in any form of natural stance or or movement and if they're not truly built to handle that then trying to over exaggerate it is actually only going to have the opposite effect and make them appear like their hawks turn in more than they actually do certainly they don't the hawks don't rub if you're setting them super wide and but then as soon as they take a step here's the here's the movement and the function piece is as soon as they take a step if they're set too unnaturally wide they immediately have to step inward with both legs to regain sort of their natural balance underneath of themselves. And so then you create this this almost false illusion that that animal tracks narrower than what she would have if she just stepped slightly inward to begin with, if those legs were just slightly wider than the front legs, uh, which is the way that we should naturally be posing them in the first place.
1: Right. right. And I think the other thing to kind of touch on is I know we preach that you want to have your dough line up from uh, pins to hocks. If you were to draw an imaginary line, you kind of want it to be in line. But when you're showing off your animal to your best advantage, sometimes that might not be the proper setup, particularly if she's maybe a little postier or if you really want to make her have that angulation into the thigh, that would be more ideal. And so sometimes you have to play with her leg. And it's, I was just judging a showmanship class and there was a Nigerian who, her weakest area was that back end. She was low in the thoroughs. She wasn't very incurving into that thigh. And so she, the exhibitor was doing an excellent job putting those legs exactly how we preach to set them up. But if she moved that leg just almost a foot behind, all of a sudden that le- that thigh was more curving, the leg was a little less posty, there was it was more that ideal shape. So that's the other thing I think everybody has to consider too is where, you know, sometimes you have to play with the placement to really show them to their best advantage.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and Danielle, that that goes right along with the language that I read under showing animal to its best advantage, recognizing the confirmation faults of the animal you are leading and striving to help overcome them. And and so if you recognize that fault of that rear leg and can set that foot just slightly differently than what you would on an animal that, let's say, maybe has ideal rear legs, um maybe setting them just slightly differently will at least create that illusion that those rear legs are better than what they are. A, an example of this for me, my showmanship doe, um, although she was in, in my perspective as a youth, the most perfect goat in the world and certainly was my heart goat. And still to this day as my heart goat, as some people call them, um, she did not have the strongest rear utter attachment and did not have the strongest globular shape to that mammary system from the side. And so for her to create more balance and symmetry of her mammary system when viewed from side angle, I had to almost tuck her rear legs underneath of her body just one length from the length from her the the tip of her toe to the back of her heel. If I brought that one hoof length forward from where it should have been, she instantly had a little bit more rear udder coming behind that rear leg than she did if I set those legs where they should have naturally been. And it it then showed her to her best advantage by maintaining a slightly correct, not as perfect or correct placement of the rear legs, but the placement of that rear leg then added to her mammary system um, appearance and so it was trying to hide the fault that she didn't have quite enough of that shape to the mammary system from the side or balance of mammary system from the side. And so again, just changing that that placement of that foot, you can add so much more advantage in the the certain areas of the scorecard by changing how you present that animal. And that's that's really, again, where a good showman can become a great showman is being able to very quickly and very critically look at the animal that they've just been handed, whether they were just handed it in a showmanship class or one of their friends, you know, asked them, Hey, can you come show my Toggenberg for me? You know, I know you're done showing your Obi's. Can you show a Toggenberg for me? Yes, that's that's great. Let me take a look at her really quickly so I can I can very quickly analyze what are her strengths and what are her weaknesses so that I can hopefully accentuate those strengths and let the judges really see those. And maybe try to hide those weaknesses a little bit more. And and again, that's really kind of um, what separates the the best showman from the average and above average showman.
1: Right. No. And now um, let's kind of really quickly with nationals coming up. What do you have as tips for, especially you know the senior showmanship class? What is a tip you would want to give to? endure a longer showmanship class than a youth might be used to?
2: Um, The best piece of advice that I can give for enduring a um, longer showmanship class. And for those that have maybe never shown at the national show and are, are planning to do showmanship there, or maybe have never shown at their state fair and are planning to do that this year, typically your bigger, more competitive shows the showmanship class is going to last longer and in some cases quite a bit longer than your typical club shows or your County fair shows. Um, When I was a youth competing coincidentally at my first national show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, I can't remember the exact number that was in um, senior showmanship, but I remember the bulk of us before they, dismissed and left the top 10 to work them longer in the ring, the bulk of us were in the arena for an hour and a half before they whittled it down to these are our top 10 and we're going to work with them. And I think they worked with them another half hour. And so if I remember correctly, um, those youth um, were in the ring for anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. And I know that there have been, Shows since that time, since I was a youth that had even greater numbers of exhibitors in which the youth were in the ring for two plus hours um, for that yes. showmanship competition. And so um, showmanship is a team sport. There's there's the human teammate and there's the Caprine teammate. And, and I say that every time I judge a showmanship competition or give a showmanship um um, class or um, um, showmanship day where, you know, I'm, I'm coaching kids at a county fair or something. Uh, and so if both teammates are not mentally and physically prepared, it may not produce the intended results that you want. Um, and so for me, what I believed in, um, in preparation for knowing that myself and my animal were going to need to be able to lead well and stand still for long periods of time for a long national show. I would practice taking my animal out into the backyard in the evenings uh, when it got cooler and it wasn't quite so hot. And we would walk around the backyard. I would set a timer for at least an hour. Um, And we would practice kind of the endurance factor of showing for an hour or more. Um, And when it got closer to the national show about a week and a half to two weeks before there would be one or two nights of the week that we would go out there and stand out there and just practice and, and set our feet and do that for upwards of two hours. And it sounds like a lot of time and a lot of commitment, but again, you get out of your national show or your state fair show experience, what you put into it. Nobody that puts in five minutes of effort is going to get two hours worth of effort when it's time to perform and something that um, I was taught as a student and I, and I teach my students now is practice how you want to perform or you will perform how you have practiced. And I'm a strong believer in that statement. And so if you want your animal and yourself to perform for upwards of two hours, you have to have practiced that a couple times so that it's not a new experience and your animal is now getting tired or you are getting tired or losing mental focus. And so if, if you can be mentally and physically prepared for that, then it won't be such a shock when you're thrust into that situation at the national show or at your state fair or whatever level of competition you're looking at.
1: No, that yeah. makes a ton of sense. And I think if you kind of phrase dairy goat showmanship as a sport, If you were practicing and competing on your varsity football team, you would be attending your practices every day, each, you know, five times a week and competing on a games Friday night or however it all kind of works. And it's the same thing. You have to put in the practice to compete and win.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely and um, and within that practice you know if you're in your backyard and if you have a a brother or sister or a parent or a, you know a, whomever is is there helping you um if you can have them pretend to be the judge or be another exhibitor so you can practice some of those maneuvers and and really nail down the the intricacies of the techniques of changing place in line or Um, changing sides of your goat in a smooth and inconspicuous manner and doing it properly. Again, those all constitute part of the practice experience that you can start to prepare your yourself and your animal for um, right at home before even getting to the venue and being thrust into the competitive nature, because, you know, what, what is hard to replicate at home is the actual sense of pressure That or nerves that you might feel when that big event that you've been leading up to um, is now here. Um, You can't replicate having 40 or 60 or even 100 other youth out in the ring at the same time with their goats uh, bleeding, uh, and I don't mean bleeding, I mean bleating, um, or or, um, calling to their friends on the outside of the ring or such. Um, You can't prepare for this is a judge I've never seen, or I've never shown under, or you can't prepare for, um, oh no, my showmanship doe was sick on the morning of show, and now I have to use a different animal. You know, those things you can't prepare for. What you can prepare for is your mental fortitude, um, and hopefully, barring any disaster with your showmanship animal, you can prepare them to be ready for the amount of time and the amount of times that you're going to be crossing back and forth in front of them and, um, you know, picking up their legs and placing them in a certain spot. Um, and so, again, I've, I've talked about my showmanship goat. She was um, a dear, wonderful goat. Her name was Tornado. And um, Tornado, in her last year that she did her last showmanship competition, um, I like to tell this story. And so if I can take a few minutes to tell this story. I entered an adult showmanship competition at a, a local fair. And nobody had signed up to compete but me. And so there was another recently 4-H graduated um, youth that was just a few years younger than me. And, and I asked him, I said, well, I noticed that you didn't sign up for showmanship. And he said, I'm not going to because I noticed you signed up and I know you have Tornado here. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he goes, Tornado is half of your you know, success in the show arena. She's way too old and way too seasoned at this. I don't stand a chance. And I said, well, okay, I don't want to go out there and not have any competition. What could I do to get you to agree to compete? And uh, he said, well, if when you walk into the ring, you have to drop the collar on Tornado. You can't hold the collar. And I thought, oh, boy, this is a challenge that I've never done. But if that, if that is the conditions that he will agree to at least give me competition so I have somebody to compete against... Okay, deal. I'll do it. So um, we went out into showmanship and true to my word, I dropped her collar down to the base of her neck and um, Tornado stayed right with me the entire class. And when I would stop, she would set her feet up and hold her head up in its natural position. When I would start walking, she would start walking. When I would stop, she would stop. And that included being able to cross in front of her. We had developed such a relationship and amount of practice with her over nine years of working with that same animal that she inherently knew what I was expecting of her when it was showtime. And we still won. And I never touched the goat that entire showmanship class.
0: That's amazing. Holy cow.
2: That's so cool. And so you certainly don't have to do that at the national show. But again, <laughs> that the level of of hours and hours and hours of practice over the years that, that I put in with that animal. And, you know, like I said, she would almost fall asleep on the stand as she was getting clipped or if it was a long class and I knew the judge was on the op- opposite end of the arena at the national show, I could put my hand underneath her jaw and just let her almost relax and fall asleep um, until I, you know, gave her a slight little nudge with the collar and said, Okay, it's time to wake up and you, you know, you gotta be back on, so to speak. And um, you know, she was again very, very well trained, um, and and very seasoned in what she knew how to do. And again, she could almost show herself and and it was um certainly not expected. I thought, oh boy, she's gonna not enjoy this and she's gonna walk off in the middle of the class. But That was the condition set by my competition at that particular show. And it was very interesting to see and and kind of a humbling experience to see that, you know, the level of trust that that animal had built in me as well to um, to trust that I was going to um, move in the same way that we did at home and she could just do what she was trained to do.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. What a fun story. Uh, I I honestly think that great story is uh, where we're going to end this episode on. Um, Kurt, we're probably going to have to have you on again for part three next next year, and <laughs> and uh <laughs> hopefully we can get Julie to to carve out some time. I know she's. I was going to say right I have now. at
2: least five more hours worth of notes here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on for Showmanship Part Three. Uh That is a promise to all of our listeners. Um. Now, for some quick housekeeping before I wrap it up, um, we do want to remind everybody that orders are open for pickup uh, for T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, whatever have you at, at National Show on our website, com forward slash merch. So get those orders in. If you would like to partake in the post-collection connection, Uh, Go ahead and sign up. There's different tiers there. Explains it all for you. And yeah, you can also find us on the social medias. Danielle, where can they find us at?
1: So if they are on Facebook and search Ringside and American Dairy Goat Podcast, be be sure to give us a like. If you're on Instagram, we are ringside underscore goat underscore podcast. And be sure to follow us there. And then we are on TikTok and Twitter, and you can find us if you search for Ringside American Derigo podcast.
0: Yeah, and we will be uh, shooting some TikToks at Nationals, uh, unbeknownst to Danielle. It's the first time she's hearing it, but uh, we've got some that we want to work on and get out to everybody because everybody seems to enjoy it. I've gotten quite a few messages from people saying, oh, that was really funny. You got to do this and that. And. I agree. So, uh, as long as we continue to have fun making TikToks and the podcast and all of the social media stuff that we share with our whole community, uh, we will and we'll keep doing it. Um, you know, we really appreciate everybody listening in and tuning in weekly. Uh, so, really enjoy it, um, Doctor Kurt Schnipke of Overboard Dairy Goats. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you again for having me and. I do want to just wish everybody the best of luck with your showmanship uh, competitions and with competitions in general. And at the, the end of the day, remember you're there to have fun. It's a goat show and enjoy the process and enjoy the experience with your animals. Well said. And I think I love that's, it.
0: that's a great spot to uh, wrap it up again. Thanks Kurt. Thank you, Danielle, for joining and everybody. This has been ringside an American dairy goat podcast. I'm John.
1: And I'm Danielle.
0: And we'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA
1: does not represent the registry.